Morning, birds. Hold on. Can't see what's going on out there. There's some action in the alley. Oh. Oh. I don't want my neighbors to think I'm surveilling them. Oops. What? What, what is that, uh, what is that microphone over there? Hello, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. This is Sparks, and I would like to welcome you to the Weekend Pirate Radio Special here at Spleet.network. Enjoy. Kimberly Chrisman Campbell uh, joins us. It's early out in L.A., but she's up with her, with, not with her latte. Hi, Kimberly, good morning. Good morning, Gary. It's great to be here with my latte. Um, so you get up early. Uh, do you always do that or just for radio interviews? Because you've written a bunch of books. Do you write in the morning? You know, I have kids, so I write when uh, they are out of my hair. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, among those those books are The Way We Wed, Worn on This Day, The Clothes That Made History, Fashion. I think I just read two things in a row here. Um, that's one book, The Way We Wed, on wedding stuff, right? That's right. A Global History of Wedding Fashion is the subtitle. Wow. Um, let's start there. Um, I've seen some, um, I don't know, I, I said at the beginning of this that if you looked up uh, Careless Dresser on Google, it was my picture. <laughs> oh, that's you. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is. Um, I'm, uh, I've, I'm, my hair is growing back, though. But um, So, you know, I, I, when you look back, of all the fancy, if you name a fancy event, it's a wedding, right? So, um, that's right. How, that might be the most dressed up that any of us ever get in our lifetime. And and how how far does um, how far, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna answer my own question. I'm guessing wedding finery goes back to weddings, right? So what about that? Well, yes, there's a long history of wedding fashion. And one thing I discovered while writing this book was that some of the things that we think of as being very old and very traditional are actually pretty modern. I mean, the white wedding dress didn't really become. Uh, the norm until the 19th century, which is pretty recently in historical terms. And at the same time, many of the things that we think we invented, like, you know, the the getaway dress or the the wedding week uh, of, you know, having lots of events with lots of different clothes to go with them. Those traditions go way back. They're much older than we think. That was fun to get into the history of weddings and how things have changed and how things are maybe not uh, in line with what we think the history of weddings is. What a, what, what's a trousseau? Does that work in here somewhere? Yes, a trousseau is uh, the bride's wardrobe, essentially. And for a long time when a bride got married, she would come with her wardrobe of everything she would need for at least a year, but often more. And that oh. would not just include her clothes, but yeah. things like table linens and sheets and all the household goods that she would need. And that, that was an important part of her wedding shopping. What, um, tell me about the veil. The veil comes and goes. Yes, the, and the veil is another one that's a very recent tradition, at least in the Christian church. Um, Jewish brides have worn veils for a long time, but it was really only in the 19th century that uh, the wedding veil became a part of the traditional Christian ceremony. Do you, um, uh, what kind of research do you do? do you, are you looking at pictures? Do you go to museums? Do you speculate? But, uh... Yes, my background is in art history, so I use a lot of images of different kinds. 
but also objects. I mean, the objects are really important. And with wedding dresses, fortunately, so many of them have been saved and preserved, um, much more so than other types of dress, because they are sentimental, they are beautiful, they are expensive, and oftentimes they were only worn once, so they don't actually fall apart. You know, I toured the, um, uh, the Smithsonian, I think, if I recall, is where I saw this. They have a um, um, the presidents and the first ladies. And the first ladies, right. right? Okay, talk about that. That was really interesting to me. Yeah, all the first lady inaugural gowns go to the Smithsonian. So they have a wonderful collection going way back to, um, not necessarily the first president, but, but to early in America's history of clothes worn for inauguration. And even in the 19th century, uh, first ladies were putting a lot of thought into where they got their clothes. They wanted to wear American designers, wanted to wear American textiles. And there's a very long history, and it's beautifully illustrated by that collection of gowns. Michelle Obama never looked bad in anything. I got to say, <laughs> I, I yes, gotta, she really revolutionized fashion. I got to say that with all, with all, with all, uh, <laughs> with all due respect to her, her fashion model successor. Anyway, um, I uh, I wanted to ask you about war. Uh, stuff. I watch a lot of old black and white movies, and um, along with the uh, the fashion of that, um, you see these these war movies, and they and not only do the military people have a uniform, there's almost a uniform of for civilians in its own way. You know what I mean? Um, That's it, right. Yeah, go ahead. Talk about that if you would. You know, the history of military dress is also its own specialty because there are so many intricacies and different ranks and insignia. Uh, and that's something I got into a bit in Worn on this Day, but also there's a chapter in the wedding book on wartime weddings. And it's actually my favorite chapter because it really shows the creativity and ingenuity of brides and grooms who had to get married under less than ideal circumstances. And I actually see a lot of parallels with COVID era weddings where they might be drastically scaled down or happen at the last minute or have to get postponed. Uh, all of that just takes me right back to researching the World War II wedding. Yeah, hit me, hit me, hit me with a story or two from the, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you're suggesting that they had to, um, no pun intended, embroider some, some sort of thing, right, in the war because you couldn't get this or that. <laughs> yes, there was a lot of make, do, and mend. Uh, there's a parachute wedding gown in, in my book. Oh, wow. that I, right. I actually used it more on the day and used it again in the wedding book because it was so amazing. Okay. Uh, and it was actually a parachute that the groom wore too because it saved his life when he bailed out of his oh. bomber after it caught fire over oh. Japan. So he kept it and he gave it to his fiance and she made her wedding gown out of now it that's... because it was of course very hard to get silk and other beautiful materials during the war. That's much cooler going to Brides R Us, right? I mean, that was, that's, a, <laughs> that's cool. It's a wonderful story and their, their daughter and their daughter-in-law also wore it for their wedding and it's now in the Smithsonian. It's not going to get worn again. Wow. This is Kimberly Chrisman Campbell, Chrisman, C-H-R-I-S-M-A-N, Campbell. Her website is KimberlyChrismanCampbell.com. Uh, I'll be happy to uh, send you uh, that in writing. Uh, we're at RadioAnything at gmail.com. Uh, shoot, me a, shoot me a note and I'll, I'll send you back. It's uh, Kimberly Chrisman Campbell. Um, do people, um, do, 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 you, um, do you freelance? Do people call you up and say, I'm getting married? Can you give me a, what about that? Nobody called me up about getting married, but I, I am a freelancer. I've been totally freelance for 14 years. Right. Before that, I worked in museums. And I do a lot of great uh, different projects. I contribute to exhibition catalogs. I lecture. 
I um, you know, write journalism for the Wall Street Journal, Politico, The Atlantic, uh, and then I write books, and that's, that's pretty much all I, I have time for now. <laughs> <laughs> and you have two children. And I have two children. I don't know, I don't know how you work that into your schedule, Kimberly, but we're okay. Um, well, that's why I'm freelance. Once, <laughs> once I had kids, I couldn't do museum hours anymore. So um, we have a lot of uh, kind of museum interest and in, in things like that on the show here. Art, in, Art Institute here in Chicago. Um, what, what, what's your museum background? What, did you, do you have an education of some sort? I'm sure you do. Yes, I have a Ph.D. in art history and a, a master's degree in, in history of dress. And uh, then after I finished my Ph.D., I worked at the Huntington Library here in Southern oh, California right. Beautiful. for yes. um, three or four years. And then I went on to um, Lafayette, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, which is a wonderful costume and textile collection. Did you say the history of dress is the name of a course or a, a major? That's right. I did a master's degree in history of dress at the Courtauld Institute of Art, which is the art history wing of the University of London. Wow. So um, Now, when I did that, there weren't many, very many programs of that kind, and most of them were in Europe. Now there are more, and uh, for example, you know, NYU or uh, FIT have museum studies programs geared toward costume and textiles. When I lived in New York City, I used to pass the Fashion Institute of Technology. Yes. Is that what you just mentioned, FIT? Yes, that's FIT, and they have a wonderful museum as well, and it's free, and you should go when you're in New York. I, I, I thought they were all, I don't know, I don't know what I thought. I thought they were all kind of in there, you know, with sewing machines and, you know, you know. Oh, they are. Pencils. <laughs> I didn't think of them they as, as a museum. Um, what's the most unusual uh, costume, uh, apparel, attire, something that you said, wow. I, I didn't even know this existed, or whatever. Does anything, anything jump out to you? Well, um, that's a good question. There have been so many really cool things I've gotten to see. Um, I was once uh, kind of behind the scenes at Kensington Palace, and the, the curator said, hey, you want to see something cool? And she pulled open this giant drawer in a sort of archival uh, chest of drawers, and it was Princess Diana's wedding dress. Wow. That, that was amazing. At Kensington uh, Palace. Jeez. Yeah, there, there was also um, the poor point of Charles de Bois, which is a, a very famous medieval garment uh, made of cotton. And it was, it was sort of like the, the, the puffer jacket that went under the knight's armor so yeah. the armor didn't wreck his, his skin and his bones. Arm, and, uh, armor that's looks... That's maybe the, the oldest thing I've seen. Armor <laughs> looks hard to wear. Yes, they, they did have to wear this kind of padded jacket underneath because it, it was... Really uncomfortable, otherwise. I, but one of these has survived, and it's you know it's from I think the 14th century. I read somewhere that really cool. I, this sounds like a joke, but I read somewhere that a somebody wearing chain mail um, sat on like a pancake, and that's where we get waffles. Have you? Heard? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm I really I read that. Who could make that up anyway? Well, you know, Vans, the uh, the tennis shoe that that they have the waffle sole, and that that was how they made it. It was it was basically an awful iron yeah. that they used to get that, that tread on it. Tell me about the other book, and one of the other ones that you read, uh, you wrote were, um, one was about the court, the court of Louis the, uh, the 16th. And yes, my dissertation was published as uh, Fashion Victims Dressed at the Court of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. All right. uh, and there have been a lot of books on 18th century fashion and 18th century France, but nobody had looked at that one particular period in depth. And that really intrigued me because uh, what happened between 1774, 
um, and 1789, the French Revolution, um, was, was very pivotal in French history. And I, I always compare it to, you know, imagine if the Queen and Prince Charles, you know, were both tragically killed and, and Kate and William became king and queen overnight. What, yeah. what a change that would have on society and politics and fashion and everything. And that's, that's kind of what happened when Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette took over from the, the very elderly and unpopular Louis XV. I don't know where I'm going with this, but um, it, it strikes me that in that era, the men and the women, eh, they didn't dress exactly alike. But I think to some extent, um, they were closer, um, not androgynous. You know where I'm going with this? I mean, Louis the the 16th had great hair. <laughs> and, and Marie... Uh, you might be thinking of Louis the 14th. Louis the 14th? Had great hair. Okay, uh, but Louis the 16th also had you know, a, a naturally uh, thick uh, hair because it was a wig, of course. But they were... But the... Go ahead. The... the you have to adjust your, your perceptions when you work on the 18th century, because up until the time of the French Revolution, which was 1789, uh, men and women both wore things like lace and ribbons and embroidery and brightly colored silks. And there was much less uh, gender differentiation than there is today to our eyes. Now, at the time, those weren't considered gendered fashions. They were signs of wealth and prestige. Uh, but after the French Revolution, things changed dramatically. Everybody became much more simple in their dress, and men started wearing you know, very dark colors, very sober colors, less embroidery, less gold, less bling. Uh, and women women continued to do so, but not not ever to the same extent. Um, at the at the risk of being um, pointing out some, I don't know what the word is, um, pants. In my lifetime, women were whatever the word is allowed to wear pants. How about they were they were not pointed at and, and screamed at um, for wearing pants? Um, that's yeah, something. Yeah, go go that's, ahead, right? My, well, my next book or the one I'm I'm currently working on is actually titled Skirts, and it's a history of women's wear in the 20th century, and it gets into that issue. Um, we we tend to think of the 20th century as the the century where women were finally allowed to wear pants. Uh, but they didn't actually do it until the 1970s. I mean, there were scattered examples, but it didn't really become mainstream Kimberly, until the 1970s. Kimberly, I can confirm that. And our we have a we have a we have a hazy memory, but you're exactly right. Of course, go ahead. Yeah, and 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 so I, I'm looking at what they did wear because you know so many of the great achievements. Uh, in women's history happened by women in skirts. I mean, the suffragettes wore skirts. Marie Curie wore skirts. There, the, the, it, it, it's not to say that women can't do anything active or, or effective in dresses, because they did. Uh, and so I'm, I'm looking into that and looking into why we kind of think of pants as being somehow superior to dresses. Yeah. And I think it's actually changed by now because I think around the turn of the current century, you had women like the Duchess of Cambridge or Michelle Obama um, or, you know, more recently, Stacey Plaskett, who are coming out in these amazing skirts and looking yeah. very powerful and looking very professional in, in a dress rather than in a pantsuit. You no longer have to put on a pantsuit to be taken seriously in, in the workplace. Um these, and these so are all it's a really interesting shift. And these are all role models, and, and 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 rightfully so, I think. I mean, the right, the right, the right the people that dress that dress right and act right, like Michelle, who who wouldn't, right? That's right. I mean, and 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 it takes 
it takes prominent examples like that to make changes. Um, you know, we are all influenced by celebrities and politicians and royals. And they, even, even though we may think, well, you know, this is silly and this doesn't really matter. It, it often, and this, ha- this happened in the wedding book too. There are a lot of celebrities in my wedding book just because when, you know, Stacey, uh, when Cindy Crawford gets married on a beach, that automatically inspires other people to do it. So a lot of the trends on um, same-sex wedding, for example, you know, once Ellen DeGeneres got married, it gave us civilians um, a, a role model and an example of what could be done. So you you can't really discount the role of the rich and famous and you know the life the lifestyles of the rich and famous in Hollywood in setting fashions even today. Do you think LGBT is um, helping us to have sort of less uh, gender-specific clothing? Not that we're all going to be androgynous, but um, you're with me, right? I I live in an area where uh, people kind of dress the way they dress, all right? And um, and, and everybody thinks that's okay. We're getting more of that, not less, right? Well, you know, when people talk about androgynous clothes they or, or gender-neutral clothes, they are often talking about women wearing clothes that have traditionally been worn by men and not the other way around. Right. I was actually... Yeah, very I, recently, I was, we've, we've I, seen I, a lot of male celebrities, and I, I, I talk about this in, the, in my book because I think it's a new thing. I think it started in the 90s, uh, and we're seeing a lot more men experimenting with women's clothes. Little Nas X, for example, was just on The Tonight Show wearing a skirt. Uh, Harry Styles was on the cover of Vogue wearing a skirt. And it was not a kilt. It was not a sarong. It was not a male skirt. It was a, a women's skirt. But men are now able to wear these things and still look amazing yeah. uh, without trying to look like a woman. We have Aaron, the news baron, joins us. Uh, hang on. Three, two, one. And there he is. Hi, Aaron. Hello, how are you? It's a miracle. You're connected. Is it really you? <laughs> it's my twin brother, unfortunately. It's not somebody from Robin Hood mimicking your voice. Is it trying to calm you? Well, I need to get his Robin Hood account information. <laughs> so um, I, uh, I was telling the story about my old colleague, Dick Sutliff, uh, uh, who always used to say, if there's nothing happening, why bring it up? I think part of what we do here on the show here, you and me, is try to figure out what you know, what people would want to know, what they need to know, and uh, all that stuff like that. So um, we, we got into a thing with Apple yesterday, and uh, that's that's pretty complicated. Um, I want you to know for all, uh, um, uh, what's the word, honesty, um, I have had Apple stuff forever. Um, and, yeah, okay, and, uh, and let's, I, I, I say this every time we talk about it, um, Steve Jobs is dead, and the company has just changed a lot. So, anyway, the one thing uh, let's start here. I um I, I was reading uh, something you sent me yesterday, and they talk about malware. I don't know if people know what malware is, but the thing when you when you have a Mac, all right, and I have a, we have uh, one, two, three. I have four Mac devices that I can see here, and if you try to download something, um, it says you get it you get from on a Mac now, not on a PC. It says this is uh, software which was downloaded from the internet, it may not be safe, or something like that. So they prompt you, all right? And I always, yes. I have to go and take, you know, a pill and get my anxiety. <laughs> but I say, okay. That's my design. Okay. All right, so, so my point is that, that, that the, the idea that you could get, you know, malware being something other than what Apple intended on your Macintosh device is relatively new. That's what I'm getting at. 
And, yes. and, and one of the things that's happening now is people are, are saying, and it used to be a very, a very pristine, because back in the old days, uh, PCs were loaded with, with crap all the time. So, mm -hmm. um, all right, I'll start there. So one of the thoughts now is that it's time to blow the whistle because um, Apple says there's just too much, uh, not Apple, but other people say there's too much malware on, um, on, on Mac devices. Did I get any of that right? Yeah, all of that. Uh, the last part, Craig Federici, Apple's head of software, actually himself, he testified, and we reported um, yesterday, the day before, um, Cook testified, Tim Cook, uh, head of software, also testified. So this is kind of a developing story and um, you know, kind of this whole slew of issues. But one, the thing that you said was key there. When you have a Mac, and this is actually a quote I'm going to read from him really quick. Huh? Uh, it's, it's worded kind of weirdly, but hold with me. Uh, this is a quote. I think of it as the Mac is the car. You can take it off road if you want. You can drive wherever you want as that comes as a driver. Uh, you got to be trained. There's a certain level of responsibility in doing that. But that's what you want it to buy. You want it to buy a car. With iOS, you're able to create something where children, even infants, can create, can operate an iOS device and be safe in doing so. Really different products. So what you said was key. Yes, there's a prompt when you're downloading, you know, Soundbite or any professional uh, software uh, from a company. They don't need to go through the Mac App Store. They can just put it on their website. Uh, and Apple will say, hey, are you sure you want to download this? But nonetheless, it's your choice because it's your device. Uh, With iOS, the iPhone or the iPad, that's a different conversation is what Apple is telling you. This is not a car. Huh. You can't, the battery dies out on you. You can't just replace the battery. Huh. If you can't just go and change your brakes and change your oil like you can on a normal car, you have to go through Apple to change your oil and your battery. And there's a clear reasoning for this. You don't want people messing around, getting hurt, then suing Apple. Huh. That's Everyone agrees with that. But it gets a problem where you start to specifically change parts of your devices that are the same as any other device just so it can be designed differently for an apple device thus you need to go through apple to get it repaired here at pirate radio we like it when our audience is part of the show please feel free to send us an email at radio anything at gmail.com or you can just send us a toll-free voicemail 24 7 at 844-220-3300 Please share a thought with us, and we will listen to you here on the radio. And don't forget to join us Monday through Friday at Split.network. Thank you. We're joined this morning by Eldon Ham, our Attorney General. Eldon, hello. Hi, Gary. How you doing? How are you doing? Um, you know, we've, we've got some heavy, meaty stuff here to, 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 uh, to chew up here. i got to ask you, though, I was watching... I was watching The Firm on TV the other night. The uh, I think that's a John Grisham novel turned into a book. Um, right. And it just occurred to me, do you lawyers watch lawyer stuff? Do you have like a favorite TV lawyer, favorite movie lawyer? Or you just sit, do you sit there throwing stuff at the screen and say, no, it doesn't happen like that? What about it? I'm not sure about all of us, uh, but I happen to like watching them. Uh, they, they all are to a degree simplistic because you can't do everything in a two-hour film or even a TV series, of course. Plus, on top of it, most of lawyering is really, really boring. Yeah. You might lose your audience. Yeah. A lot of reading, a lot of research, a lot of uh, prep work, you know, boring stuff. But uh, there, there, are a lot of, there are a lot that are pretty good. Uh, the, the firm, I thought, was kind of good. Uh, not necessarily the... Uh, the the whole plot about the running a, a criminal operation. Yeah. But, uh, 
it, it conveyed really well the drudgery and work involved in a young lawyer. You know, uh, they, they spend the first part of the film showing you what it's like to be just constantly overworked as a young lawyer in a big firm, right? Yeah. And, and that, that's kind of a true thing. Uh, that that does happen but yeah we do uh I, i've enjoyed some of the old stuff uh, some of the newer ones uh, another one that shows the uh the seedy side of law and the uh, drudgery and the work involved is a an older movie with paul newman called the verdict oh yeah and sally field right uh you know i don't know if she was in that she was in the other she was in another one uh with him about uh uh, I think uh, First Amendment or uh, absence of malice. Oh, okay, and that yeah, wasn't yeah. bad yeah, either, yeah. by the way. Yeah, okay. uh, the Paul Newman movie had James Mason in it, and uh, he played a drunken has-been trial lawyer. Newman did, yeah. and he and he gets a great medical malpractice case, uh, uh, and uh, and James Mason defends the uh, all the rich hospitals and everything in this malpractice case. But yeah, there's a lot of them. I used to like the TV show L.A. Law. Uh, uh, simplistic little show but i always thought the vignettes about the trials were interesting because some were little things like dog bite cases and some were bigger things and so uh enough good stuff creeps out that i kind of like it i know that some doctor friends of mine just freak out and can't stand doctor shows like say the the tv show house uh my take on house was that it's really not a medical show anyway it was really the uh a mystery cloaked in a hospital setting Really, it was really just the medicine was kind of the, the the means to an end. But I I like that show too. I think uh, the uh, I mean, you have Ellen. You've got what do you what do you have a, a dozen books under your belt? Have you do you not have a screenplay somewhere? Come on, you can tell us. <laughs> not not a single screenplay anywhere. Oh man, but you're honest. You're honest. Something. Listen, I used to uh, I used to ask people. I remember one night I had a paramedic call in on the show, and I said, "You watch you watch the uh, TV." And how realistic. And he says, you know, the other day, they had a guy with a broken neck, and they put him onto an ambulance like a box from Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, 10-4 on, on all this. But listen, I, um, I, 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 I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what, uh, what is going on in Washington. We, we inherited the Supreme Court. Trump, and i got to ask you about him. I was going to say Trump is dead, but his administration lives on. God forbid. Anyway, what do you make of all that? There's a, a 6-3 majority. Is that a, is that a big deal? Well, if it was a 6-3 majority, that would be okay, especially if you're with the majority. Right. But uh, there's, there's all kinds of different talk, right? Uh, some of it is whether to expand the court. Uh, they talk about packing the court. I find it interesting the court already got packed uh, by McConnell, yeah. uh, by by detraction, right? Uh, he kept somebody off, he kept Garland off the court for a year, uh, using all kinds of nonsensical pretext. And by the way, pretext is one of my favorite legal uh, terms. And, and so the court really kind of got packed to get where it is right now. Uh, Amy was uh, rushed through in a week or less, and uh, uh, seat was kept open for a year or more and so we got here by the same way that some people would would say is is packing the court so uh, i'm a little worried about it because if if democrats you know take it up to 12 or 13 and the republicans take it up to 19 and the next thing you know you got 2,000 people on the supreme court right yeah, yeah. so well, somewhere it, it really ought to end and it's, it's despicable what mcconnell did by 
by not letting Obama choose somebody who was actually a fairly moderate rational guy in, in Garland. Yeah. And now maybe they'll all regret it anyway because he's the attorney general <laughs> might put half of them in jail. Who knows? I know. Kennedy said, forgive your enemies, but remember their names. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Nixon's problem was he put them all down on a list. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, it's, 24 before, it's 24 before the hour. It's Pirate Radio from Chicago. This is Eldon Hamm, who's our attorney general. Eldon uh, is a law professor, uh, practicing attorney. I'm uh, getting pretty good at it now, and uh, an author of all kinds of stuff. Hey, let me jump around for a second, could I? When, you, when I used to uh, have you on, and, I, and I'd say, uh, um, Eldon's going to come on, and we're going to talk about sports law, and the first thing you told me, there's no such thing as sports law, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I actually remember that. Yeah, so if I, on, on the heels of this Belarus thing, if I said, you know, I wanted, I wanted to know about international law, would you say, well, actually, there is nothing, there is nothing that's going to work for, for that particular thing? What, what about would, that? Well, it might be out there someplace. Uh, I'm not the guy that's too expert on it, but I can tell you that with Belarus, it, it feels to me that it's a violation when you uh, force down an airplane just to drag some guy off for being a, a journalist or, or truth teller or whatever you want to describe it. Right. I, I did hear the other, just recently, it might have been yesterday or the day before, uh, Mikhail Baryshnikov, the, the, the star ballet dancer from right. years back, uh, was it defected from uh, Russia. And uh, I heard that whenever he took a flight in or around Europe or anywhere, for that matter, he made sure the flight pattern never, ever, ever touched Russia airspace. Wow. All right. Because he was afraid the same thing would happen to him. Okay. Yeah. Well, and probably would have. Um, I mean, that's the thing. This fellow's name um, is uh, Roman Protasevich. He is, I think, 28. Um, but unlike Baryshnikov, he's not a global celebrity, right? So a little easier. No, not particularly a celebrity. I think he's got a following, though, like a, a, a social media following. He does. A lot, of, a lot of people are aware of him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, more and more and more in the last couple of days. So, um, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Anyway, um, I, uh, I guess the larger, um, the larger issue is, I don't know, the, um, the journalist, uh, Khashoggi, or who's an American citizen that they kidnapped and, and killed. It goes on and on, Eldon. I'm saying at some point, um, what do you call a change of venue in law? It's yeah, all, well, yeah. it's always, it's always their venue. So, um, what do you think? Is it going to get... Are we going to figure this out, or is it just going to get cloudier? It, it'll probably get cloudier for a while. Uh, I'm old enough to remember a whole lot of things in the past that seemed like they were impossible to get resolved, and then eventually they did. You know, you, when you go back uh, to uh, the Kent State shootings and uh, students protesting, Vietnam War, at the height of all that, when there was there was a anti-racism movement and an anti-war movement going on at the same time. Things seemed pretty dark. And then you had Nixon as president and all. And eventually that kind of got cleared up, yeah. uh, at least on the surface anyway. So I, I, perhaps I have no, nothing but the hope for the past. And, and uh, the optimistic side of me is that maybe some of this will get resolved. The, yeah. the problem is we've got two sides of government, two the congressional, two side parts of the congressional side one of which doesn't even seem to be interested in governing and that's a little different you know back in the vietnam days there were two sides to the story you know people wanted to achieve certain things and would compromise to try to move the needle one way or the other a little 
now there there doesn't seem to be two sides to the story. It's it's one side and the other side consists of no, <laughs> never nothing, anything. We're not doing anything, and, and even to the point where they want to hurt the country so that they can complain about it later and uh, use that as leverage. I could go on and on. You know, the uh, they were they were dealing with the, like the tenth recount of the Arizona election. The company yeah. finally gave up and said, "We're not doing this anymore." Right? So I mean, they don't even know how to do it. I know. How do you? I mean, how many, how many times can you count, you know, anything? So, listen, let me ask you to hang on a second, and we'll come back if we could. I wanted to, I, w- I want to see what's cooking in Washington and uh, whether we can keep uh, the president, the other one, out of jail or not. So, um, <laughs> hang on a second. We'll be back. It is a 19 before the hour here. It's Pirate Radio from Chicago. Do you know what you've just inhaled? air. Yes, but what about the dirt and harmful gases that come from our automobiles and factories and houses? Before you take another breath, think what air pollution may be doing to your lungs. Hold it now. Think, what are you going to do about it? Well, if there are groups in your town fighting to make the air clean, join them and support your local or state control officials. They have some ideas on how you can help. Keep in touch with them. They're the good guys. They want to keep those hats white. Or write to Clean Air, Washington, D.C. Uh, by the way, holding your breath is not the answer. <laughs> oh, there's a Bill Clinton joke in there somewhere. Uh, Eldon, Eldon Ham, uh, back with us. And Aaron Mittens is on the other line. Eldon, you know Aaron, our uh, news director, I think there he is. Oh, hey, right, sure. Hey, hi. hi, Aaron, say hello. Uh, let's see here. What happened to... Uh, uh, Aaron, go ahead. Say hello. I'm not hearing you at all. Hey, Odin, how are you? There he is. Okay. Yeah, hi. There he is. So listen, um, everyone is um, um, waiting to see what happens with um, the, uh, the post-Trump indictments or the lack of post-Trump indictments or this... Um, this uh, September, I'm sorry, uh, January 6th commission that may or may not happen. And I am, uh, listen, I was having lunch uh, yesterday, Elman, and I apologize. I just saw a headline that, uh, that's all I know, that the Trump people are now saying that whatever he did as president, he is immune from prosecution. Is that is that what your understanding was? Well, it's not my understanding that you're immune from prosecution. In fact, it would even be a surprise to Nixon, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think you have. In fact, it's just the opposite of uh, our, our system of laws. The the president is not above the law, right? right, that, right. Uh, they're they're grasping at straws. They're throwing things at the at, at the wall to see what sticks. Or even if it actually, what's amazing is they don't even care if it sticks. If it's diversionary, it's good enough. <laughs> just say it, or do it, and see what happens. But one thing it could do, you can argue long enough until. Uh, you know, Trump drops dead, and uh, the the whole thing is moot, right? They right. they don't need to win; they just need to stall it for yeah. about ten or twelve years or yeah. two years. Who knows? Although he's lost fifty pounds. <laughs> well, that's, depending on why he lost it, I suppose that's probably good for him. I don't th- I don't think he's switching from golf to tennis, and I'll tell you why: because you can't <laughs> che- you can't cheat at tennis. So Aaron Aaron had some Aaron had something to contribute. Mr. Mittens, go ahead. Yeah, I had a question about, um, it was just kind of um, reported on that they convened a grand jury in the um, case against him and his um, company. So kind of with your legal expertise, knowing kind of like the 
I's they need to dot, the T's they need to cross. Before they convene that grand jury, what kind of basic information do they need to already have? Like, what do you think is kind of cooking? They, they don't need to have a real high bar that they've cleared to just start a grand jury. In fact, uh, the, the grand jury process is sort of a weird thing. It, it takes place in secret. Uh, if, if you're called into a grand jury, you're not even allowed to have your lawyer with you. Your lawyer can be sitting outside in the hall, and once in a while you can ask a question. But uh, it, it's, a, it's an oddly looser thing than one would think. And then the, at the end, the, the standard is not so much that anybody gets proven of anything. It's that uh, the, the possibility is there. It's a reasonable possibility that a crime had been committed. And so it, once you get that ball rolling, it's not terribly hard to get an indictment out of a grand jury as a rule. Uh, this one seems pretty serious. Uh, they say they're going to meet three times a week and maybe for months. Mm. I, I was a little surprised that it would be six months. Uh, but typically grand juries don't meet quite that often on one particular thing. And by the way, I think this one was convened with the Trump organization in mind. It's huh. not a sitting grand jury that you run in one day and say, here, here's some paperwork. What do you think? Huh. Uh, so I think they think they have something. And part of the game being played, I believe, is to see who flips on who first. And that may dictate where it all goes, huh. because whether, whether Trump is immune or not, uh, it would it would probably create a huge stir to indict him and put him in jail with yeah. his supporters. You're going to have people with AR-15s uh, storming the place to, to break him out. So yeah. that would be kind of a big thing. But but that's uh, the but that... it would be it, it would be entertaining. Excuse me, just one one last thought. Yeah, it would be yeah. entertaining to watch Trump watch everybody else go to jail around him because everybody seems convinced that he would throw everybody under the bus before he went to jail. But Eldon, student of history, that's what happened with Nixon. He got off. You knew that, right? Twelve, twelve of his guys went to the joint, and and he and he got off. So um, yeah, they let him slide off into the sunset. And Gerald Ford was pretty much, I think, a rational guy, yeah. and decided not to. To tear the country apart anymore, and they let Nixon slide away. Uh, and Nixon, and Nixon was a crook, but at least he was a kind of a competent president. Like yeah. he knew how to do things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing was at the point where Nixon was, uh, um, you know, we're talking about. He was not. He wasn't at the. Unlike Trump, he wasn't presiding over this large constituency, right? I mean, the country wanted him to go away. Um, uh, yeah, eventually the country had had enough. Yeah. You're right. And and uh, I mean, one one would hope that that will happen with President Orange here, but uh, perhaps not. Here's the premise. I just wanted to, there's no punchline here. Uh, there is a punchline. I just wanted to see how this would happen. I remember uh, looking at a, a, a bit something like this a really long time ago on TV. And what they did, they had a bunch of, um, at least bilingual or trilingual or people that spoke a lot of languages. And they, and they had them all on stage in this TV show. And uh, they, they had the first person tell a joke in English to the second person in, uh, the second person translated from English to something else. And blah, 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 blah. So anyway, they went down the line there. And I thought we would, I just wanted to simulate this. So I got up this morning. Let's see if I can find, uh, all right, let's, I'm just going to spin this. I just want to see what we did. 
And then at the end of it, they 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 wanted to see if the, if the joke had made its way through all this uh, translation stuff. All right, here's the joke. It's an old it's an old vaudeville joke, and the joke goes like this: A kangaroo walks into a bar and orders a beer, and the bartender says that'll be ten bucks. And you know we don't see a lot of kangaroos in here. And the kangaroo says, "Well, at these prices, I'm not surprised." All right, so you got the idea. So we, okay. so we translated that into Spanish, and it came out like this. All right, so a kangaroo walks into a bar, and a kangaroo. Un canguro entra en un bar y pide una cerveza. El camarero dice que serán 10 dólares. Sabes que no vemos muchos canguros aquí. That's y right. el canguro dice, con estos precios, no me sorprende. No me sorprende. I'm not surprised. Okay. So then we want to do a little spit here. I use the same joke and um, we did it uh, en français. Un kangourou entre dans un bar et commande une bière. Le barman dit que ce sera 10 dollars. Yeah. Vous savez, nous n'avons pas autant de kangourous ici. Et le kangourou dit que je ne suis pas surpris de ces prix. Oh, I love it. All right. I think we want to learn some of these. Okay, so then we popped over. We took our kangaroo over to Italy and uh, told the same joke. Un kangourou entra in un bar et ordina una birra. Il barista dice que sarà di 10 dollars. Sai que non vediamo molti kangourous qui. Et le kangourou a dit, con questi prezzi, non sono sorpreso. Okay. All right. I'm getting it. So listen, I, there's so many languages. I was just uh, I was looking around at stuff that was kind of spoken in the neighborhood here. All right. What about the Greeks? You know, in Greece, all right. You're in Greece, a kangaroo walks into a bar. Ένα καγκουρό μπαίνει σε ένα μπαρ και παραγγέλνει μια μπύρα. Yeah. Ο μπαρμαν λέει ότι θα είναι 10 δολάρια. Ξέρετε ότι δεν βλέπουμε πολλά καγκουρό εδώ. Και το καγκουρό είπε, με αυτές τις τιμές δεν με εκπλήσει. You know, this could be a secret message. I don't, we could be alerting the, the, uh, the distance somewhere. Speaking of, all right. Would, would, this, would this bit be complete without a tip of the hat? to the other leader of the free world, Vladimir Putin. Here we go. So a kangaroo walks in to a bar in Moscow, all right? And what is, is what, and what, well, all right, he goes in. Kangaroo заходит в бар и заказывает пиво. Бармен говорит, что это будет 10 долларов. Вы знаете, у нас здесь не так много кенгуру. И кенгуру говорит, что я не удивлен такими ценами. That's right. Uh, I'm, I'm getting the, I'm getting the flavor of all these here. All right, then I translated it back from Russian to English, and it came. It was I won't I won't bore you with it, but it was pretty long. And the last thing was, and I can't believe these prices. John, you're in Toronto this morning, are you not, sir? I am indeed in cold Toronto, unfortunately. <laughs> it's, well, listen, it's a delight. Um, to see a uh, instead of dot com dot ca on your email, so um, we're uh, we're ready. Um, it is cold up there. It's actually chilly down here in uh, in uh, Chicago. Uh, John is the proprietor of uh, is it Elas E L A Elas. It's, it's 
It's Ella. Ella's tea. Ella, oh. Ella happens to be actually because I'm an old guy. Happens to be my granddaughter. So this tea company was started up in her name. <laughs> All right, Ella's Tea Company in uh, in Toronto. Um, you're a tea expert. I never uh, ran into anybody who uh, is a self-described tea expert. What well, do you do? You, you travel around? You know, are you a consultant? Yes, I. So I I do quite a bit of consultancy. I've I'm not a self-professed expert. I just happen to be doing this for a long time, for about 37 years, actually, huh. which uh, really makes me feel old. But um, <laughs> uh, yes, so I've worked in most tea origins. So I've worked in India and Africa, uh, traveled in China, Indonesia, you know, basically wherever tea is made. And I've currently been doing quite a lot of uh, consultancy for the United Nations FAO uh, group as a uh, the agricultural group, uh, looking at certain countries that are trying to revitalize their industries, such as republics of Georgia, Azerbaijan, Mauritius. Uh, yeah, so all, that's my world in a nutshell. All those places grow tea. It's amazing how many countries do grow tea, actually. Um, in fact, another, uh, yes, and many of them have sort of gone fallow over for certain political reasons, like Mozambique, for instance, in South uh, East Africa, is just coming back after sort of 30 years of civil strife. Um, so yes, there's about 60 countries, including the USA, yeah. producing a lot of tea these days. I didn't. I, just, I, I sound like the really the worst person at all in in, in radio. Where where is it we grow the the tea in the United States? So it really. Started, there was a, a, unit, well, a Lipton's tea experimental station um, down in South Carolina, uh -huh. Wadmalaw Island, which is now uh, still there, but it's now owned by the Bigelow Tea Company. But um, since then, there's been a real renaissance of growing. So tea is now grown in Hawaii, Georgia, uh, Louisiana, uh, really all over the United States. Can I say that you just said re, you pronounce renaissance? Yeah, I, I called it a key renaissance. Okay. I'm working with, I, 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 over here, it's, I think it's a renaissance, but I think I know what you're talking about. Let me ask you. <laughs> right, you know, that, that's my limey. You know, that's my limey. Uh, no, no. You know, Shaw said that the Americans and the Brits are two people separated by a common language. So I think that's, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so. exactly. So what's the deal on caffeine in tea? Um, is there more? I guess it would depend on the tea, right? But um, versus coffee or versus what? Go ahead. So if you look at it from on a weight by weight basis, tea actually has more caffeine in it than coffee. But obviously, we use a lot less tea to make a cup than you use coffee. Usually about two grams of tea to make a cup of tea, but eight grams of coffee. So in, indeed, when you make a cup of coffee, you're ingesting more caffeine. The, the, the difference between teas is actually quite significant. Um, but really all teas, green, black, oolong, white, whatever you may make, come from the same bush. All right. So if they come from the same origin, they will have the same inherent caffeine content. Let me try Let me try true or false with you, John, and I'm pretty sure a lot of this is false, but I think tea starts as white, and then you, 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 you cook it or smoke it or something, and it becomes black. Is that right? Uh, that's false. Okay, uh, all right, so good. Tea, yeah, tea is a tea, uh, the piece of the bush, 
which is a camellia bush, a flowering camellia bush that's uh-huh. plucked is the leaf. And that green leaf, depending on what you do with it, will either end up as your white to green, uh, yellow tea or red tea. Uh, some, some of the white teas, however, are, have no leaf at, at all, but just the unfurled bud, if you will, the next leaf uh, to come out. That's really known as silver needle tea and is clear in liquor. So, um, but there's a difference between green tea and black tea, yes? Or? Yes, and that's, that's purely an oxidation process. That's just, if you take the leaf off the bush and you, uh, you put a lot of heat onto it straight away, oh. it will kill the enzyme that allows the tea to change color and you'll have green tea. If you take that leaf straight off the bush and you crush it, so you open up, uh, that enzyme to atmospheric oxygen, it will slowly produce color. First of all, sort of yellow or golden colors, which uh-huh. would be in the oolong uh, tea category. I love, and then it goes all the... Sorry? I was going to say, I love oolong. I, that That's hard to get, actually, but I like that. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no. And, and then if you let it go further, um, you'll get reddish or orange coloration which is obviously your black teas uh-huh. and then at any time when you get to the desired amount of oxidation if you just fire that tea i heat it up enough you will kill the enzyme that is required for oxidation and you fix the tea's characteristic um and that's why even when you look at a black tea you say oh it's black tea because it's black that's really because it's been fired but when you brew it it's actually red all right. Um, this is uh, John Snell from Toronto, owner of Ella's Tea Company, uh, and their website is uh, uh, nmtb nmteab dot com. Is that right? Oh, actually, the Ella, so that's my consultancy okay. nmtb. Right. Ella's Tea is currently just e l a s t e a dot c a. Okay. All right. Good. And, All right. Yeah. Thank you. My um, my producer is uh, over here on FaceTime. Uh, Natasha, I think I can hear you. Can you, uh, you want to say something? That you just finished your. Uh, she was me cooking up some tea here. She okay. read me. She read me the can. Go ahead. I don't know if I can hear you. Go ahead. Give it a shot. Hello. Hi. There she is. Can you hear her, John? At all? I think so. All right. I'll translate. Go ahead. What's your question? Yeah. Did the did the key tick kick in yet, Natasha? Do you have tea every morning, John? I have tea, uh, yes, on an hourly basis. Do you really? So, oh, yeah. No, no. I have tea all day long. So you you sleep, so, what, about 20 minutes a night? or I don't know. Uh, no, you know, the, the interesting thing with tea is that everyone talks about the caffeine content, but yeah. the one unique thing to tea is it has something called L-theanine in it. Uh-huh. And L-theanine is also uh, is also an activator, if you will. But what it does is it it, med- it it if you will mediates for the caffeine. So instead of having the caffeine jitters, L-theanine acts to give you more concentration, but you just don't get the jitters at the back end. So I always call tea the smooth high, which is probably probably going to get me into marketing trouble, seeing as we now have legal cannabis here. Yeah. But still, no, I think I think that works. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So, um, all right. So you say you have it on an hourly basis. Do you do it like an afternoon tea? 
the you know what I'm talking about the big the the the, the food ceremony that I it's like I don't know four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. So so uh, I I don't on a regular basis though. I I do think that it's um it's a ritual that is coming back in many cafes and in fact I love it when I get the opportunity to uh, to do it. Um, I think that it's you know I mean afternoon tea started. Uh, started as to split up the boredom between lunch and dinner, which was so far apart uh, hundreds of years ago. And and now I think it is an occasion when people snack rather than sit down for meals to be reinvigorated and be used as a snack occasion, um, albeit it should be a little healthier than sort of scones and clotted cream. <laughs> um, I, uh, I love clotted cream, by the way. Um, I'm, so trying to, I'm, I'm trying to explain what clotted cream is to, to people, but it's good. So listen, uh, over in Japan, as we, as we leave across the ocean, they have something called a tea ceremony. Is that just yes. Japan, or what about that? So there are many different versions of, if you will, tea ceremony. Uh, the Chinese have uh, their own tea ceremony. Um, and I would say that there are a less formal tea ceremonies from around the world. But the Japanese have a particularly... Um, fixed tea ceremony, which is uh, revered as, because it is not just about serving tea; it is about uh, the occasion of being. They um, and 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 so it is the reverence of serving serving someone a this 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 treat from the land. So yes, it's 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 truly. Uh, it's like going to church uh, in, in Japan. <laughs> this, you know, it's just, I'm talking about tea, it's so mellow. There's like a meditation thing. People, there's no coffee ceremony, John, right? Nothing like you walk into Starbucks, give me a latte, hurry it up, right? It's not, it's just not the same thing. I, I think, I think that is the thing with tea is because it does take time to steep. Yeah. It is something, you know, it really is a drink that you take at home for the most part. And I do think that that's a shame because tea actually is something that can be made pretty quickly. Yeah. And, you know, what we have seen is a huge uptick in tea consumption during the COVID times when people have spent more time at home and have been working remotely. They have time to put a kettle on and, and, and make a tea. Really? I, that, um, that's very interesting. I'm not, it's not surprising, but that's, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, no, and I, I think that uh, I think that the other thing that's uh, that, and I think it's a missed opportunity. I do think that food service operators really understand the value of tea. I mean, obviously, in uh, in the U.S., iced tea is huge. I mean, it's eighty percent of everything that's drunk in the U.S. is uh, tea-wise is is iced, yeah. and it is one of the largest margin opportunities in the food service sector. Huh. You know, um, back, you referenced uh, Lipton tea. Um, back when I was um, really young, there was a, a kind of an international, a, a national guy it was just huge, Arthur Godfrey, um, and and they got him as a spokesperson for Lipton tea, which in that era was people didn't drink tea in the United States. Not many Americanos did. Um, yeah. And uh, you know what I'm talking to, so. Um, it's, I guess if we looked at the, um, at a graph of tea consumption since, I don't know, 1950, is it, is it a continually, um, you know, an, an up, an up, an upscale curve there? Uh, and it goes on and on. Yeah. So what I would say is that, uh, 
it's it, you're right that not many people did drink tea in the United States, but I would say that the United States has been, and thanks to a number of individuals, have been the birthplace or the rebirth place of specialty tea in in the world. I mean, people like and a very good but unfortunately passed away friend of mine, Steve Smith, who started the Tazo Tea Company, mm-hmm. was probably was probably the first person. He also was a co-founder of the Stash Tea Company, which um, both companies still exist. And and he really pioneered the the surprising fact that tea has value. You know, everyone used to think that tea should just be cheap and cheerful and it's something their grandmother made and really paid no attention to it. Um, But actually, by inferring value on tea, it enabled people to experience uh, better teas that were being experienced in other parts of the world, but not here in North America because we weren't prepared to pay for it. Um, and that has significantly changed. This is uh, this is John Snell on the line from Ella's Tea Company in Toronto. Can I put sugar in my tea, John? Is that all right? Absol- you know what? Absolutely. I, you know, there's everyone talks about tea and health, yeah. and you know the thing about tea is it does have very well researched health benefits from the antioxidants which are basically the plant polyphenolic compounds that uh, that that have a range of health benefits but when people say should we you know tea is healthy and that should be the thing that we sell it for i say no tea is tasty first and foremost and i i used to have a flavor chemist who worked for me and whenever I used to say to him, gosh, I want more flavor, he said, well, just add salt or add sugar. And <laughs> so what I will say is that sugar will always bring more flavor out of a yeah. tea. And I'm not, I'm not advocating that everyone should put uh, sugar in their tea, but I'm just saying that there's nothing wrong with it. If that's how you want to, you know, spice your tea up, I think it's, uh, I think it's perfectly fine. I personally have... Uh, a chai tea, which you know, made with milk, right. and you put I put sugar in that because basically, when you put spices into a tea, it tends to give it some brittleness in the flavor profile, and sugar mellows out that that profile. So, if you have an astringent tea or something a bit bitter, bit of sugar, perfect. So, there's a chain down here. Um, I won't mention them, Starbucks. Um, uh, they have a they, they have a chai tea latte. Which is what I get, yeah. so that's all right. I was afraid we we're going to fight, John. I was going to come on the purest, put down the damn half and half. Let's get, you know. But I can see that we're going to get together here. So. You know, you know. I, 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 whenever someone says, "Oh, you're a tea expert," to the, tell me what the best tea is. I say it's whatever tea you like, because <laughs> frankly speaking, you know, everyone has a different taste profile. Yeah. They have, uh, you know. I think context is everything. You know, when I taste, when I'm. On travels, for instance, if I'm in India, I will always be served milky tea with sugar. And that is appropriate for that particular time. But if I am in Sri Lanka and there's, you know, and you're up in the highlands where uva tea has this beautiful citrusy bright character, they wouldn't dream of serving that with either sugar or milk. So context and personal preference should lead should 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 be the lead not what anyone like me says we're traveling around the world with you vicariously yeah i want to be in your suitcase
You are listening to the Bleat Network. This is Bleat. <laughs> <laughs>